Section 1 of Anecdotes of Dogs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Lee. Anecdotes of Dogs by Edward Jesse. Section 1 Introduction. Part 1. A French writer has boldly affirmed that with the exception of women there is nothing on earth so agreeable or so necessary to the comfort of man as a dog this assertion may readily be disputed but still it will be allowed that man deprived of the companionship and services of the dog would be a solitary and in many respects a helpless being let us look at the shepherd as the evening closes in and his flock is dispersed over the almost inaccessible heights of mountains they are speedily collected by his indefatigable dog nor do his services end here he guards either the flock or his master's cottage by night and a slight caress and the coarsest food satisfy him for all his trouble the dog performs the services of a horse in the more northern regions while in cuba and some other hot countries he has been the scourge and terror of the runaway negroes in the destruction of wild beasts or the less dangerous stag or in attacking the bull the dog has proved himself to possess preeminent courage. In many instances he has died in the defense of his master. He has saved him from drowning, warned him of approaching danger, served him faithfully in poverty and distress, and, if deprived of sight, has gently led him about. When spoken to, he tries to hold conversation with him by the movement of his tail or the expression of his eyes. If his master wants amusement in the field or wood, he is delighted to have an opportunity of procuring it for him. If he finds himself in solitude, his dog will be a cheerful and agreeable companion, and may be, when death comes, the last to forsake the grave of his beloved master. There are a thousand little facts connected with dogs, which many, who do not love them as much as I do, may not have observed, but which all tend to develop their character. For instance, everyone knows the fondness of dogs for warmth and that they never appear more contented than when reposing on the rug before a good fire. If, however, I quit the room, my dog leaves his warm berth, and places himself at the door where he can the better hear my footsteps, and be ready to greet me when I re-enter. If I am preparing to take a walk, my dog is instantly aware of my intention. He frisks and jumps about, and is all eagerness to accompany me. If I am thoughtful or melancholy, he appears to sympathize with me, and, on the contrary, when I am disposed to be merry, he shows by his manner that he rejoices with me. I have often watched the effect which a change in my countenance would produce. If I frown or look severe, but without saying a word or uttering a sound, the effect is instantly seen by the ears drooping and the eyes showing unhappiness, together with a doubtful movement of the tail. If I afterwards smile and look pleased, the tail wags joyously, the eyes are filled with delight and the ears even are expressive of happiness. Before a dog, however, arrives at this knowledge of the human countenance, he must be the companion of your walks, repose at your feet, and receive his food from your hands. Treated in this manner, the attachment of the dog is unbounded. He becomes fond, intelligent, and grateful. Whenever Stanislaus, the unfortunate king of Poland, wrote to his daughter, he always concluded his letter with these words. Tristan, my companion in misfortune, licks your feet, thus showing that he had still one friend who stuck to him in his adversity. Such is the animal whose propensities, instincts, and habits I propose to illustrate by various anecdotes. 
The propensities of the dog, and some of them are most extraordinary, appear to be independent of that instinct which Pally calls a propensity previous to experience, and independent of instruction. Some of these are hereditary, or derived from the habits of the parents, and are suited to the purposes to which each breed has long been and is still applied. In fact, their organs have a fitness or unfitness for certain functions without education. For instance, a very young puppy of the St. Bernard breed of dogs, when taken on snow for the first time, will begin to scratch it with considerable eagerness. I have seen a young pointer of three or four weeks old stand steadily on first seeing poultry, and a well-bred terrier puppy will show a great deal of ferocity at the sight of a rat or mouse. Sir John Seabright, perhaps the best authority that can be quoted on this subject, says that he had a puppy of the wild breed of Australia, that the mother was with young when caught, and the puppy was born in the ship that brought her over. This animal was so like a wolf, not only in its appearance, but in all its habits, that Sir John at first doubted if it really were a dog, but this was afterwards proved by experiment. Of all the propensities of the brute creation, the well-known attachment of the dog to man is the most remarkable, arising probably from his having been so many years his constant companion, and the object of his care. That this propensity is not instinctive is proved by its not having existed, even in the slightest degree, in the Australian dog. Sir John Seabright kept this animal for about a year, almost always in his room. He fed him himself, and took every means that he could think of to reclaim him, but with no effect. He was insensible to caresses, and never appeared to distinguish Sir John from any other person. The dog would never follow him, even from one room to another, nor would he come when called unless tempted by the offer of food. Wolves and foxes have shown much more sociability than he did. He appeared to be in good spirits, but always kept aloof from the other dogs. He was what would be called tame for an animal in a menagerie, that is, he was not shy, but would allow strangers to handle him, and never attempted to bite. If he were led near sheep or poultry, he became quite furious from his desire to attack them. Here, then, we see that the propensities that are the most marked, and the most constant in every breed of domestic dogs, are not to be found in animals of the same species in their natural state, or even in their young, although subjected to the same treatment from the moment of their birth. Notwithstanding the above-mentioned fact, we may, I think, consider the domestic dog as an animal per se, that is, that it neither owes its origin to the fox nor wolf, but is sprung from the wild dog. In giving this opinion, I am aware that some naturalists have endeavored to trace the origin of the dog from the fox, while others, and some of the most eminent ones, are of opinion that it sprung from the wolf. I shall be able to show that the former is out of the question. The wolf, perhaps, has some claim to be considered as the parent animal, and that he is susceptible of as strong attachment as the dog is proved by the following anecdote, related by Cuvier. He informs us that a young wolf was brought up as a dog, became familiar with every person whom he was in the habit of seeing, and in particular followed his master everywhere, evincing evident chagrin at his absence, obeying his voice, and showing a degree of submission scarcely differing in any respect from that of the domesticated dog. His master, being obliged to be absent for a time, presented his pet to the Menagerie du Roy, where the animal, confined in a den, continued disconsolate and would scarcely eat his food. At length, however, his health returned, he became attached to his keepers, and appeared to have forgotten all his former affection, when, after an absence of eighteen months, his master returned. 
At the first word he uttered, the wolf, who had not perceived him amongst the crowd, recognized him, and exhibited the most lively joy. On being set at liberty, the most affectionate caresses were lavished on his old master, such as the most attached dog would have shown after an absence of a few days. A second separation was followed by similar demonstrations of sorrow, which, however, again yielded to time. Three years passed, and the wolf was living happily in company with a dog, which had been placed with him, when his master again returned, and again the long-lost but still-remembered voice was instantly replied to by the most impatient cries, which were redoubled as soon as the poor animal was set at liberty. When, rushing to his master, he threw his forefeet on his shoulders, licking his face with the most lively joy, and menacing his keepers, who offered to remove him, and towards whom, not a moment before, he had been showing every mark of fondness. A third separation, however, seemed to be too much for this faithful animal's temper. He became gloomy, desponding, refused his food, and for a long time his life appeared in great danger. His health at last returned, but he no longer suffered the caresses of any but his keepers, and towards strangers manifested the original savageness of his species. Mr. Bell, in his History of Quadrupeds, mentions a curious fact which, I think, still more strongly proves the alliance of the dog with the wolf, and is indeed exactly similar to what is frequently done by dogs when in a state of domestication. He informs us that he remembers a bitch-wolf at the zoological gardens, which would always come to the front bars of her den to be caressed as soon as he or any other person whom she knew approached. When she had pups, she used to bring them in her mouth to be noticed, and so eager, in fact, was she that her little one should share with her in the notice of her friends, that she killed all of them in succession by rubbing them against the bars of her den as she brought them forwards to be fondled. Other instances might be mentioned of the strong attachment felt by wolves to those who have treated them kindly, but I will now introduce some remarks on the anatomical affinities between the dog, the fox, and the wolf, which serve to prove that the dog is a breed distinct from either of the last-mentioned animals. It must, in fact, be always an interesting matter of inquiry respecting the descent of an animal so faithful to man, and so exclusively his associate and his friend, as a dog. Accordingly, this question has been entertained ever since natural history took the rank of a science. But the origin of the dog is lost in antiquity. We find him occupying a place in the earliest pagan worship. His name has been given to one of the first-mentioned stars of the heavens, and his effigy may be seen in some of the most ancient works of art. Pliny was of opinion that there was no domestic animal without its unsubdued counterpart, and dogs are known to exist absolutely wild in various parts of the Old and New World. The dingo of New Holland, a magnificent animal of this kind, has been shown to be susceptible of mutual attachment in a singular degree, though none of the experiments yet made have proved that he is capable, like the domestic dog, of a similar attachment to man. The parentage of the wild dogs has been assigned to the tame species, strayed from the dominion of their masters. This, however, still remains a question, and there is reason to believe that the wild dog is just as much a native of the wilderness as the lion or tiger. If there be these doubts about an animal left for centuries in a state of nature, how can we expect to unravel the difficulties accumulated by ages of domestication? Who knows, for a certainty, the true prototype of the goat, the sheep, or the ox? To the unscientific reader such questions might appear idle, as having been settled from time immemorial, yet they have never been finally disposed of. 
the difficulty as with the dog may be connected with modifications of form and color resulting from the long-continued interference of man with the breed and habits of animals subjected to his sway buffon was very eloquent in behalf of the claim of the sheep-dog to be considered as a true ancestor of all the other varieties mr hunter would award this distinction to the wolf supposing also that the jackal is the same animal a step further advanced toward civilization or perhaps a dog returned to its wild state as the affinity between wolf jackal fox and dog cannot fail to attract the notice of the most superficial observer so he may ask if they do not all really belong to one species modified by varieties of climate food and education if answered in the negative he would want to know what constitutes a species little thinking that this question apparently so simple involves one of the nicest problems in natural history difference of form will scarcely avail us here for the pug greyhound and spaniel are wider apart in this respect than many dogs and the wild animals just named it has often been said that these varieties in the dog have arisen from artificial habits and breeding through a long succession of years this seems very like mere conjecture can the greyhound be trained to the pointer's scent or the spaniel to the bulldog's ferocity but admitting the causes assigned to be adequate to the effects then the forms would be temporary and those of a permanent kind only would serve our purpose of this nature is the shape of the pupil of the eye which may be noticed somewhat particularly not merely to make it plain to those who have never thought on the subject but with the hope of leading them to reflections on this wondrous inlet to half our knowledge the more especially as the part in question may be examined by any one in his own person by the help of a looking-glass in the front of the eye then just behind the transparent surface there is a sort of curtain called the iris about the middle of which is a round hole this is the pupil and you will observe that it contracts in a strong light and dilates in a weaker one the object of which is to regulate the quantity of light admitted into the eye now the figure of the pupil is not the same in all animals in the horse it is oval in the wolf jackal and dog it is round like our own however contracted but in the fox as in the cat the pupil contracts vertically into an elongated figure like the section of a lens and even to a sort of slit if the light be very strong this is a permanent character not affected as far as is at present known by any artificial or natural circumstances to which the dog has been subjected naturalists therefore have seized upon this character as the ground for a division of animals of the dog kind the great genus canis of linnaeus into two groups the diurnal and the nocturnal not to imply that these habits necessarily belong to all the individuals composing either of these divisions for that would be untrue but simply that the figure of the pupils corresponds with that frequently distinguishing day-roaming animals from those that prowl only by night it is remarkable that a more certain and serviceable specific distinction is thus afforded by a little anatomical point than by any of the more obvious circumstances of form size or color whether future researches into the minute structure of animals may not discover other means to assist the naturalist in distinguishing nearly allied species is a most important subject for inquiry which cannot be entertained here but to encourage those who may be disposed to undertake it i must mention the curious fact that the group to which the camel belongs is not more certainly indicated by his grotesque and singular figure than by the form of the red particles which circulate in his blood 
and here again the inherent interest of the matter will lead me to enter a little into particulars, which may engage any one who has a good microscope in a most instructive course of observations, not the least recommendation of which is that a just and pleasing source of recreation may be thus pursued by evening parties in the drawing-room, since the slightest prick of the finger will furnish blood enough for a microscopic entertainment, and you may readily procure a little more for comparison from any animal. Now the redness of the blood is owing to myriads of minute objects in which the color of the vital fluid resides. They were formerly called globules, but as they are now known to be flattened and disc-like, they are more properly termed particles or corpuscles. Their form is wonderfully regular, and so is their size within certain limits. In birds, reptiles, or fishes, the corpuscles are oval. They are circular in man, and all other mammalia, except in the camel tribe, in which the corpuscles are oval though much smaller than in the lower animals. Thus, in the minutest drop of blood, any one of the camel family can be surely distinguished from all other animals, even from its allies among the ruminants. And what is more to our purpose in pursuing this inquiry, Mr. Gulliver has found that the blood corpuscles of the dog and wolf agree exactly, while those of all the true foxes are slightly though distinctly smaller. These curious facts are all fully detailed in Mr. Gulliver's appendix to the English version of Gerber's Anatomy, but I think that they are now for the first time enlisted into the service of natural history. Thus we dismiss the fox as an alien to the dog, or, at all events, as a distinct species. Then comes the claim of the wolf as a true original of the dog. Before considering this, let us revert to the question of what constitutes a species. Mr. Hunter was of opinion that it is the power of breeding together, and of continuing the breed with each other. That this is partially the case between the dog and the wolf is certain. For Lord Clanbrassil and Lord Pembroke proved the fact beyond a doubt, above half a century ago, and the following epitaph in the garden at Wilton House is a curious record of the particulars. Here lies Lupa, whose grandmother was a wolf, whose father and grandfather were dogs, and whose mother was half-wolf and half-dog. She died on the 16th of October, 1782, aged twelve years. Conclusive as this fact may appear, as proving the descent of the dog from the wolf, it is not convincing, the dog having characters which do not belong to the wolf. The dog, for instance, guards property with strictest vigilance, which has been entrusted to his charge. All his energies seem roused at night, as though aware that that is the time when depredations are committed. His courage is unbounded, a property not possessed by the wolf. He appears never to forget a kindness, but soon loses the recollection of an injury, if received from the hand of one he loves, but resents it if offered by a stranger. His docility and mental pliability exceed those of any other animal. His habits are social, and his fidelity not to be shaken. Hunger cannot weaken, nor old age impair it. His discrimination is equal, in many respects, to human intelligence. If he commits a fault, he is sensible of it, and shows pleasure when commended. These, and many other qualities, which might have been enumerated, are distinct from those possessed by the wolf. It may be said that domestication might produce them in the latter. This may be doubted, and is not likely to be proved. The fact is, the dog would appear to be a precious gift to man from a benevolent creator, to become his friend, companion, protector, and the indefatigable agent of his wishes. While all other animals had the fear and dread of man implanted in them, the poor dog alone looked at his master with affection, and the tie once formed was never broken to the present hour. 
It should also be mentioned, in continuation of my argument, that the experiment of the wolf breeding with the dog is of no value, because it has never been carried sufficiently far to prove that the progeny would continue fertile inter se. The wolf has oblique eyes. The eyes of dogs have never retrograded to that position. If the dog descended from the wolf, a constant tendency would have been observed in the former to revert to the original type or species. This is the law in all other crossbreeds, but amongst all the varieties of dogs, this tendency has not existed. I may also add that as far as I have been able to ascertain the fact, the number of teats of the female wolf have never been known to vary. With respect to the dog, it is known that they do vary, some having more and others a less number. Having thus brought forward such arguments as have occurred to me to prove that a dog is a breed sui generis, I will give a few anecdotes to show how different this animal is in a specific character to the wolf, and that he has a natural tendency to acknowledge man as his friend and protector, an instinct never shown by the wolf. In Ceylon there are a great number of what are called wild dogs, that is, dogs who have no master, and who haunt villages and jungles, picking up what food they are able to find. If we meet one of these neglected animals, and only look at him with an expression of kindness, from that moment he attaches himself to you, owns you for his master, and will remain faithful to you for the remainder of his life. Man, says Burns, is the god of the dog. He knows no other, and sees how he worships him. With what reverence he crouches at his feet, with what reverence he looks up to him, with what delight he fawns upon him, and with what cheerful alacrity he obeys him. Such is the animal which the brutality of man subjects to so much ill-treatment. Its character depends very much on that of his master. Kindness and confidence produce the same qualities in the dog, while ill-usage makes him sullen and distrustful of beings far more brutal than himself. I have had many opportunities of observing how readily dogs comprehend language, and how they are aware when they are the subject of conversation. A gentleman once said in the hearing of an old and favorite dog, who was at the time basking in the sun, I must have Ponto killed, for he gets old and is offensive. The dog slunk away and never came near his master afterwards. Many similar anecdotes might be brought forward, but I will mention one which Captain Brown tells us he received himself from Sir Walter Scott. The wisest dog I ever had, said Sir Walter, was what is called a bulldog terrier. I taught him to understand a great many words, insomuch that I am positive that the communication betwixt the canine species and ourselves might be greatly enlarged. Camp once bit the baker, who was bringing bread to the family. I beat him and explained the enormity of his offense, after which, to the last moment of his life, he never heard the least allusion to the story, in whatever voice or tone it was mentioned, without getting up and retiring into the darkest corner of the room with great appearance of distress. Then, if you said, the baker was well paid, or the baker was not hurt after all, Camp came forth from his hiding place, capered and barked, and rejoiced. When he was unable, towards the end of his life, to attend me when on horseback, he used to watch for my return, and the servant would tell him his master was coming down the hill or through the moor, and although he did not use any gesture to explain his meaning, Camp was never known to mistake him, but either went out at the front to go up the hill, or at the back to get down to the moor side. He certainly had a singular knowledge of a spoken language. An anecdote from Sir Walter Scott must be always pleasing. Mr. Smelly, in his Philosophy of Natural History, mentions a curious instance of the intellectual faculty of a dog. 
he states that a grocer in edinburgh had one which for some time amused and astonished the people in the neighbourhood a man who went through the streets ringing a bell and selling pies happened one day to treat this dog with a pie the next time he heard the pie man's bell he ran impetuously toward him seized him by the coat and would not suffer him to pass the pie man who understood what the animal wanted showed him a penny and pointed to his master who stood at the street door and saw what was going on the dog immediately supplicated his master by many humble gestures and looks and on receiving a penny he instantly carried it in his mouth to the pie man and received his pie this traffic between the pie man and the grocer's dog continued to be daily practiced for several months end of section one